0: Chapter 10 of A Popular History of Ireland, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of Ireland from the Earliest Period to the Emancipation of the Catholics, Book 4, by Thomas Darcy Magee. Chapter 10 Events of the Thirteenth Century The Normans in Meath and Ulster. We may estimate the power of the de Lacy family in the second generation, from the fact that their expulsion required a royal army and navy, commanded by the king in person, to come from England. Although pardoned by John, the brothers took care never to place themselves in that cowardly tyrant's power, and they observed the same precaution on the accession of his son, until well assured that he did not share the antipathy of his father." after their restoration the lacys had no rivals among the norman irish except the marshall family and though both houses in half a century became extinct not so those they had planted or patronized or who claimed from them collaterally in meath the toots cossacks flemings daltons pettits hussies nangles Tyrrels, nugents verdons and genvilles struck deep into the soil the co heiresses margaret and matilda de lacy married Lord Theobald de Verdon and Sir Geoffrey de Guineville, between whom the estate of their father was divided. Both these ladies, dying without male issue, the lordship was, in 1286, claimed by Richard de Burgo, Earl of Ulster, whose mother was their cousin Germain. But we are anticipating time. No portion of the island, except, perhaps, Wexford, and the shores of strangford Lough was so thoroughly castellated as the ancient Meath from the sea to the Shannon. Trim, Kells, and Duro were the strongest holds. There were keeps or castles at Ardbracken, Slane, Rathweir, Navan, Screen, Santi, Clontarf, and Castleknock. for even these places, almost within sight of Dublin, were included in de Lacy's original grant. None of these fortresses could have been more than a few miles distant from the next and once within their thick-ribbed walls the Norman, Saxon, Cambrian, or Danish serf or tenant might laugh at the Milesian arrows and battle-axes without. With these fortresses, and their own half-Irish origin and policy, the De Lacy's, father and son, held Meath for two generations in general subjection. But the banishment of the brothers in 1210, and the death of Walter of Meath, presented the family of O'Melaghlin and the whole of the Methian tribes, with opportunities of insurrection not to be neglected. We read, therefore, under the years twelve-eleven, twelve, and thirteen, that Art O'Melaghlin and Cormac, his son, took the castles of Kilclane, Arnicur, Athboy, and Smerhi, killing knights and wardens, and enriching themselves with booty, that the whole English of Ireland turned out en masse to the rescue of their brethren in Meath, that the castles of Beer, Duro, and Kennedy were strengthened against Art, and a new one erected at Clonmacnoise. MacNoise. After ten years of exile, the banished De Lacy's returned, and by alliance with O'Neill, no less than their own prowess, recovered all their former influence. Cormac, son of Art, left a son and successor also named Art, who, we read at the year 1264, gave the English of Meath a great defeat upon the Brosna, where he that was not slain was drowned." Following the blow, he burned their villages and broke the castles of the Stranger throughout Devlin, Calry, and Brawny, and replaced in power over them the Macoglans, Magalwees, and O'Breens, from whom he took hostages according to ancient custom. Two years afterward he repulsed Walter de Burg at Shannon Harbour, driving his men into the river, where many of them perished. At his death, A.D. 1283, he is eulogized for having destroyed twenty and seven English castles in his lifetime. From these exploits, he was called Art Na a remarkable distinction. When we remember that the Irish were, up to this time, wholly unskilled in besieging such strongholds as the Norman engineers knew so well how to construct, his only rival in Meath in such meritorious works of destruction was Connor, son of Donal, and O'Meliglin of East Meath or Bregia, whose death is recorded at the year twelve seventy-seven as one of the three men in Ireland whom the Midland English most feared. From the ancient Mensal, the transition is easy to the north. The borderland of Brefni, whose chief was the first of the native nobles that perished by Norman perfidy, was at the beginning of the century swayed by Ulgarg O'Rourke. Of Ulgarg we know little, save that in the year 1231 he died on his way to the river Jordan, a not uncommon pilgrimage with the Irish of those days. Nial, son of Congol, succeeded, and about the middle of the century we find Brefni divided into two lordships from the mountain of slev anaron eastward or cavant being given to art son of cathel and from the mountain westward or Letram to donal son of connor son of tiernan de lacy's victim this subdivision conduced neither to the strengthening of its defenders nor to the satisfaction of o'connor under whose auspices it was made Family feuds and household treasons were its natural results for two or three generations. In the midst of these broils two neighbouring families rose into greater importance, the O'Reillys in Cavan and the Maguires in Fermanagh. Still, strong in their lake and mountain region, the tribes of Breffni were comparatively unmolested by foreign enemies, while the stress of the northern battle fell upon the men of Tyrconnell and Tyrone, of Oriel and of the coast country, from Carlingford to the causeway. The borders of Tirconel and Tyrone, like every other tribe-land, were frequently enlarged or contracted, according to the vigour or weakness of their chiefs or neighbours. In the age of which we now speak, Tirconel extended from the Urn to the Foil, and Tyrone from the Foil to Neagh, with the exception of the extreme north of Barry and Antrim, which belonged to the Ocanes. It was not till the fourteenth century that the O'Neills spread their power east of Launyag, over those baronies of Antrim long known as North and South Clan Hughbuddie, Clanaboy. North Antrim was still known as Dalriada, and South Antrim and Down as Ulidia. Oriel, which has usually been spoken of in this history as Louth, included Angles of Monaghan and Armagh, and was anciently the most extensive lordship in Ulster. The chieftain families of Tyrconnell were the O'Donnells of Tyrone, the O'Neills and the McLaughlins of Dalriada, O'Canes, O'Haras, and O'Shields of Ulydia, the Magennis of Ivagh and the Dunleavies of Down, of Oriel, the McMahons and O'Hanlons. Among these populous tribes the invaders dealt some of their fiercest blows, both by land and sea, in the thirteenth century. But the North was fortunate in its chiefs. They may fairly contest the Laurel with the O'Connors, O'Briens, and McCarthys of the West and South." In the first third of the century, Hugh O'Neill, who succeeded to the Lordship of Tyrone in 1198, and died in 1230, was contemporary with Donal Moore O'Donnell, who, succeeding to the Lordship of Tyrconnell in 1208, died in 1241, after an equally long and almost equally distinguished career. Meleglin O'Donnell succeeded Donal Moore from 41 to 47, Godfrey from 48 to 57, and Donal Ogue, from 1257 to 1281, when he was slain in battle. Hugh O'Neill was succeeded in Tyrone by Donal MacLachlan, of the rival branch of the same stock, who in 1241 was subdued by O'Donnell, and the ascendancy of the family of O'Neill established in the person of Brian, afterwards chosen King of Ireland, and slain at down. Hugh Boy, or the Swarthy, was elected O'Neill on Brian's death, and ruled till the year 1283, when he was slain in battle, as was his next successor, Brian, in the year 1295. These names and dates are worthy to be borne in mind, because on these two great houses mainly devolved the brunt of battle in their own province. These northern chiefs had two frontiers to guard or assail, the north-eastern, extending from the glens of Antrim to the hills of Mourne, and the southern, stretching from sea to sea, from Newry to Sligo. This country was very assailable by sea. To those whose castles commanded its harbours and rivers, the fleets of Bristol, Chester, Man, and Dublin could always carry supplies and reinforcements. By the interior line one road threaded the Morne Mountains, and deflected towards Armagh, while another, winding through west Breffney, led from Sligo into Donegal by the cataract of Assaro, the present Valley Shannon along these ancient lines of communication by fords in mountain passes and near the landing-places for ships the struggle for the possession of that end of the island went on at intervals whenever large bodies of men could be spared from garrisons and from districts already occupied in the year twelve ten we find that there was an english castle at Calusig, now castle caldwell on la Erne, and that it was broke down and its defenders slain by hugh o'neill and donal moore o'donnell acting together After this event we have no trace of a foreign force in the interior of Ulster for several years. Hugh O'Neill, who died in 1230, is praised by the Bards for never having given hostages, pledges, or tributes to English or Irish, which seems a compliment well founded. During several years following that date the war was chiefly centred on Connaught, and the fighting men of the North, who took part in it, were acting as allies to the O'Connors, Donald Moore O'Donnell had married a daughter of Cathal Crovdarg, so that ties of blood, as well as neighbouring interests, united these two great families. In the year 1247, an army, under Maurice Fitzgerald, then Lord Justice, crossed the Irn in two divisions, one above, and the other at Ballyshannon. Malaglin O'Donnell was defending the passage of the river when he was taken unexpectedly in the rear by those who had crossed higher up, and thus was defeated and slain. "'Fitzgerald, then ravaged Tyrconnell, set up a rival chief, O'Canavan, and rebuilt the castle at Kalyusga, near Bileke. Ten years afterwards Godfrey O'Donnell, the successor of Milliglin, avenged the defeat at Ballyshannon, in the sanguinary Battle of Credon, near Sligo, where, engaging Fitzgerald in single combat, he gave him his death-stroke. From wounds received at Kedron, Godfrey himself, after lingering twelve months in great suffering, died.' but his bodily afflictions did not prevent him discharging all the duties of a great captain. He raised a second time the English castle on Loch Erne, and stoutly protected his own borders against the pretensions of O'Neill, being carried on his bier in front of a battle of Lauswilly in 1258. It was while Tyrconnell was under the rule of this heroic soldier that the unfortunate feud arose between the O'Neills and O'Donnells. Both families, sprung from a common ancestor, of equal antiquity and equal pride, neither would yield a first place to the other. Pay me my tribute, was O'Neill's demand. I owe you no tribute, and if I did, was O'Donnell's reply. The O'Neill at this time, Brian, aspiring to restore the Irish sovereignty in his own person, was compelled to begin the work of exercising authority over his next neighbour. More than one border battle was the consequence, not only with Godfrey, but with Donal Ogh, his successor. In the year 1258, Brian was formally recognized by O'Connor and O'Brien as chief of the kingdom in the Conference of Kalyuska, and two years later, at the Battle of Down, gallantly laid down his life in defence of the kingdom he claimed to govern. In this most important battle, no O'Donnell is found fighting with King Brian though immediately afterwards we find Donal Ogh of Tyrconnell endeavouring to subjugate Tyrone and active afterwards in the aid of his cousins the grandsons of Cathal Crovdarg in connaught the norman commander in this battle was stephen de Longspay then lord justice earl of Salisbury in England and count de Rosmond in France his marriage with the widow of Hugh de Lacy and daughter of de Riddlesford connected him closely with Irish affairs, and in the Battle of Down he seems to have had all the Anglo-Irish chivalry, in gold and iron, at his back. With King Brian O'Neill fell, on that crimson day, the chiefs of the O'Hanlans, O'Canes, McLaughlin's, O'Gormleys, McCanns, and other families who followed his banner. The men of Connaught suffered hardly less than those of Ulster. MacDermot, Lord of Moorlegh, Cathal O'Connor, O'Gara, macdonough O'Mulroney, O'Quinn, and other chiefs were among the slain. In Hugh Bui O'Neill the only hope of the House of Tyrone seemed now to rest, and his energy and courage were all taxed to the uttermost to retain the place of his family in the province, beating back rapacious neighbours on the one hand, and guarding against foreign enemies on the other. For twelve years Hugh Bui defended his lordship against all aggressors, In 1283 he fell at the hands of the insurgent chiefs of Oriel and Breffny, and a fierce contest for the succession arose between his son Brian and Donald, son of King Brian, who fell it down. A contest of twelve years saw Donald successful over his rival, A.D. 1295, and his rule extended from that period until 1325, when he died at Leary's Lake, in the present diocese of Clogher. It was this latter Donal, or Donald O'Neill, who towards the end of his reign addressed to Pope John the Twenty-Second, elected to the pontificate in 1316, that powerful indictment against the Anglo-Normans, which has ever since remained one of the cardinal texts of our history. It was evidently written after the unsuccessful attempt, in which Donald was himself a main actor, to establish Edward Bruce on the throne of Ireland that period we have not yet reached but the merciless character of the warfare waged against the natives of the country could hardly have been aggravated by bruce's defeat they oblige us by open force says the Ulster prince to give up to them our houses and our lands and to seek shelter like wild beasts upon the mountains in woods marshes and caves even there we are not secure against their fury they even envy us those dreary and terrible abodes they are incessant and unremitting in their pursuit after us endeavouring to chase us from among them they lay claim to every place in which they can discover us with unwarranted audacity and injustice they allege that the whole kingdom belongs to them of right and that an irishman has no longer a right to remain in his own country After specifying in detail the proofs of these and other general charges, the eloquent prince concludes by uttering the memorable vow that the Irish will not cease to fight against and among their invaders, until the day when they themselves, for want of power, shall have ceased to do us harm, and that a supreme judge shall have taken just vengeance on their crimes, which we firmly hope will sooner or later come to pass. End of chapter 10